Father, I thank you for this morning. I, I thank you for all that you call us into. I thank you for the inherent worth and value uh, that you created us with. I thank you for the love that keeps pursuing us in spite of us, that, that doesn't give up on us, that um, doesn't leave us alone. I thank you for your grace, for your kindness, and I thank you for um, the privilege of getting to partner with you in restoring all things. That one day, um, this entire world will be the namesake of this church. It'll be restored. Things will be the way that they should be. And God, I just pray that we would increasingly, simultaneously believe that we are being restored as people. But again, that, that simultaneously, we believe not only that we're being restored as people, but that we're fully loved and liked pre-restoration. Like we're loved in this moment fully. That you don't just love a future version of us that's the restored version, but you love us now. And Jesus, I just ask that, um, that as we contemplate your heart for us, that, that as we look at what you call us into, that it would feel like an invitation, it would feel like an encouragement, it would feel like an honor, not an obligation, primarily. Because you, you do, you invite us into life, and life abundant. In your name we pray, amen. Um, so we are starting a new series today. It's called Salt and Light. We uh, taught through the book of Romans. We did a series called Gospel Death. We did it for over a year. Uh, we went verse by verse through the book of Romans. So we're pro verse by verse. We're pro expositional teaching. We're pro getting in there. Um, but we're doing a thematic series or, or some people call it a topical series. Um, we will be looking at texts of scripture, uh, but we're looking at an idea and the idea, it's really the, the, sub, uh, it's the subtitle of the series. It's, it's a series on reflecting Jesus in all of life. Uh, when we planted this church uh, 10 years ago, this October, which is crazy, we had five core values. You guys know the values? Anybody, any, anybody know them? Any old, old families one? Okay. Gospel. Come on. Mission. Multiplication. Dependence, great. You guys know these values, all right? And then we added a sixth about three years ago called? Come on. All right. Now, as a church, uh, again, just as, man, forget church, as individuals in our society, the last two, and, two years and change, um, everything that's been happening has caused us to look inward. Uh, so much about the pandemic and post-pandemic life and social media and, uh, you know, working from home, we go on and on and on. Our spaces have seemed to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And it's just easy to lose sight of what's outside of, you know, your two, three feet. Now, there's nothing wrong with, like, holding down your space. Matter of fact, I'm going to get into that in a big way at the end of the message. But for some of us, we just, we're just kind of seeing us. It's kind of navel gazing, kind of just you know, or you know, whatever. We're, we're, we're looking inwards, um, and again, nothing wrong with looking inward, but we can do that in such a way that we lose sight of the the outward. And and so, uh, even as we thought through our values, like these ideas of mission, representing Jesus and His message, places and renewal, seeking to see society become what what it would be if Jesus um, was Lord in an area. 
those things have kind of been set aside. And I think we've kind of really honed in ourselves and kind of our relationship with God, you know, in the church. And then maybe, maybe some family, right? Maybe, maybe a lot. Of, okay, I need people to help me because it's been hard. People that I already know. I don't have much to give, right? I, I'm in a space where I, I need to receive, and that's fine. But, but, but now as we're, we're stepping out into a new season, I think it's so important that we look out again. And two weeks ago, um, Sarah Lewis, not Clark, uh, was up here, and she laid out that first series in Salt and Light just to, just to talk about this, this idea, uh, this idea that, that we represent Jesus, and this idea that um, the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. That, that outside, if you look up, that there are people who are spiritually hungry. Like their appetite's at an all-time high, whether they'll tell you that or not. They are aware their relationships are not the way they're supposed to be. They're aware that their emotions often overwhelm them. And as helpful as therapy is, it just doesn't, they're not healed completely. They're aware, maybe I'm getting promotions at work, and it's just not doing it. Like I have the job that I thought I wanted, or I have the man I want, whatever it is, and it's just not enough. And, uh, and all that time alone, it, it for so many of us to think about what we're here for, what we're doing, and for so many people, like they're in a real existential crisis. A- and so I think that there's a great opportunity to be the church in this moment. Like I really do think we can step into something really beautiful and meet a need in a really powerful way. But I do think we need reminding that this should even be on our radar. And I want to say one big push, like I even have on this idea, is like, um, man, I just need time. I just need to, like, I need to recover. I need to get better and all that. And that's so important. I want to encourage that. But we'll never be, like, perfect. We're never going to be, like, my life is perfect enough to go out and engage this work. There always will be attention. Uh, we value emotional health as a church. We value therapy as a church. We value spiritual direction as a church. We value community as a church. We value theology. Like, all the things that happen inside we think should be having inside the church to prepare you for life. We're about all of that. We're about equipping, multiplication, all that stuff. But that doesn't mean um, that we negate the work of going out to be dis- Jesus' disciples in this world. So it's like, oh, I'll get to that later. And I want to say, like, like the time uh, is here. Now, what that looks like for you, when it's going to, all that stuff, that gets, has to get worked out in each of your own stories. But I do want to put it back on, kind of like put it back on the table. Okay, not that you're grabbing it right away, but that you're aware, okay, this should be on my table of discipleship. And so today I just want to talk about this idea um, of, of salt and light. And the series is born out of a text in Matthew chapter 5, towards the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is describing his disciples, this famous passage. He says this, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13, he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And so with this idea of salt and light, I kind of want to start this series around this specific text and talk about our identity as salt and light. Before we go do the salty stuff, before we, before we go, you know, 
By the way, we have to like reclaim the word salty. Like, dude, you're salty. <laughs> and that's really dope, right? Um, uh, so beautiful and redemptive, uh, right? But, but, but to be salty, kind of light bearers, we, we need to really, pre- we need to like look at what this means and understand uh, what it is and who we are. And so I have three points today along these lines. I have three questions and they are, what are we called to? Two, why does it feel so hard to live out this calling? And three, what hope do we have? All right, so number one, what are we called to? We're called to be, spoiler alert, salt and light. Again, we'll start to, with, with this idea. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Um, guys, I love that Jesus calls us to be salt here because I love salt. Huge salty food guy. <laughs> any, any space limit with food, I'm like, man, I wonder if I could salt this right now. Uh, oh, matter of fact, one of the things I love about Michelle Clark joining our team, she loves salt too. We've had meals where I was like, do you think it'd be weird if I salted this salad? She's like, of course you can salt this salad, Andy. <laughs> That's the kind of encouragement I need, right? I, I have to admit, uh, I have a low-key salt addiction. I, I once read a article, a article, that said salt is neutral in terms of its impact on your health. I was like, this is all the fake news I need. <laughs> the scientist friend is like, yeah, it's not the worst thing. I'm like, cool, not the worst thing is what I'm, is what I'm going for. <laughs> On a serious note, I, ne- I know I need to cut back. Please don't email me about it. I appreciate your concern. Um, uh, by the way, I don't care at all about sugar, all right? So some of you guys, you know, he was without sugar, throw the stone at the salt intake or whatever. But back to real scripture, all right? Now, in terms of our text this morning, scholars will point out that to understand Jesus' metaphor of salt here, we have to understand what salt was used for in the ancient world, okay? Uh, a couple key ideas about salt in the ancient world. The first one is this, salt was valuable. Salt was valuable. This blew my mind. For example, salt was so valuable that soldiers in the Roman army were sometimes paid with salt instead of money. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's a rare practice treasury was kind of low like they weren't doing that on the reg they were doing it on the reg the latin word for salt is uh sal uh their monthly allowance was called a a a solarium (laughs) the latin root can be recognized as the french word salaire and it eventually made its way into the english word as salary all right salt as pay uh had its day all right um so salt was valuable now I didn't plan on highlighting this aspect uh, of salt for our teaching time today, um, but I really did feel like God highlighted this for me. Because here's what I need you to know about you this morning, is that you are made in the image of God, which means you're, you're worthy of dignity, love, and respect. God designed you uniquely to reflect who he is in this world, which means you have intrinsic, eternal value to the God, to, to, to the king of the universe, to, to, to the maker uh, of the heavens and the earth. God doesn't just love you, he likes you. He doesn't just have the obligations of love and covenant. He's got the enjoyment and delight of a father. He sings over you, scripture says. God created you in love and he redeemed you because he loved you. It is true that God had to redeem you because you were really sinful, but it's not, it's not like God, it's not true, first of all, that God cannot stand to be in the presence of sin. A massive part of why, a massive part of why he hates sin 
It's because it mars the unique, beautiful person made in his image you were created to be. It's not just, ah, I don't like sin or sin is wrong. It's um, sin is destroying my creation. I remember one time me and Jackie were at the Louvre and, uh, and I saw a guy with food. I think he had a hot dog at the museum in France. I, I don't know. It's a weird vibe. Maybe hot, I guess hot dogs are global. They've gone global, you guys. I guess that's true. And I just was like, how is he walking around? Like, and I just thought, man, like if he like just rubbed his ketchup stained hands on anything in this place, like it's a nightmare. Wasn't mayonnaise. <laughs> Could have been worse. <laughs> it's grosser condiments. But, um, but man, just to mar this, this masterpiece, in the same way you are infinitely more of a masterpiece than anything hanging in the Louvre. I think this is so important that you're designed to reflect who he is in a specific way. You don't need to be anyone other than who you are. Who you were created to be. There's tension in that statement because there are parts of you that are marred by sin. They're infected. That's not the real you. The real you is made in the image of God. And some of you, you guys have been listening to a diverse choir of voices singing the same song over you for years made up of members of your family of origin, or it could, could be advertising, social media, harsh religious figures, selfish romantic partners, and <laughs> Satan <laughs> for a really long time telling you, you are not valuable. You will be valuable when you attain X. You would be valuable if you looked like her. You would be valuable if you did this like him, whatever it is. Please hear me when I tell you that that is a lie. You don't need to look more like your sibling or like a model. You don't need to have a different mind other than the mind you have. You are valuable now, even with your brokenness. You're valuable in this moment. And so salt was valuable. The other thing about salt is it changes the flavor of things. It changes the flavor of things. Um, we were on a leadership retreat in Big Bear last week. And uh, Nicole was about to eat an English muffin with unsalted butter. And, and she, she was one step away, and her husband shrieked out, no! <laughs> and he ran over with some fancy salts to put on uh, the bagel, right? Now, why did Paul do that, right? One, because salt's delicious, right? I've been through that. Also, because he, he loves his wife. Uh, he's got a great palate, great cook. But he knows salt drastically changes the flavor of the thing that it's on even in small amounts. And, and so salt does its best work. This is important. Salt does its best work in contrast to other tastes, in contrast to blandness or sweetness around it. Its distinctiveness is, is what allows it to change the taste of what it's touching. Uh, John Stott, an uh, Anglican scholar, writes this. He says, to be effective Christians, to be effective Christians must retain their Christ-likeness, as salt must retain its saltiness. If Christians become assimilated to non-Christians and contaminated by the impurities of the world, they lose their influence. The influence of Christians in and on society depends on their being distinct, not identical. You know, as a church, we value mission. We want to go out into society, but we want to influence society. We want to be in the world, but not of the world, as Jesus teaches in other spaces. An error happens quick when we assimilate to the world. Uh, Dr. Martin Lowe-Jones emphasizes this. He says, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she in invariably attracts it. 
It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. Think about that for a second. Like, what, what pops out at you? As you walk down a street, what pops? As you, as you see people walking around, who, who stands out and pops out? It's usually those who are different. It's like, man, hey, hang on a minute. I've seen a million people. What's going on with that jacket? What's going on with that? Whatever it is, like there's something unique about the person that causes you to look. But when you're in a space where everyone looks the same, none of them catch your eye. Does that make sense? Um, and, uh, and, so, and so Lloyd-Jones is saying, man, they might be offended by the fact that you're different. They might be confused by the fact that you're different initially, um, but they will pay attention. And hopefully as they pay attention, you're way better than they even knew. This is why throughout history, uh, when the church has compromised with the prevailing culture, the gospel is viewed as useless because it makes the gospel bland. It's just a part of a, a culture that they see every day. And oftentimes when this happens, when the church loses its distinctiveness inside of a system or a culture or a place, um, it loses its saltiness. And so it's kind of like it's, it's, it's gotten rid of the salt, and it's just whatever, you know, the salt was being put on into. Um, this shows up, for example, in the way that Christians uh, engage with, like, consumeristic culture, where we're dominated by the things the advertisers say, say we should be dominated by. And it is tricky, and it is hard in the modern world to not get swept up in that. It happens quick. Um, uh, it happens all the time. It happens more, um, it's happened quite a bit with politics the last 50 years. Um, in the last 50 years, uh, sorry, in the last 100 years. So the evangelical church has had a 50-year run with this. The, the mainline church has had a 100-year run. But in the last 50 years, much of the evangelical church has been rolled into conservative political ideas. Uh, and as that has happened, it's been, uh, it's been very good for the Republican Party and very bad for the Church of Jesus Christ and very confusing for those outside the church. Because uh, it creates a scenario where uh, people who maybe aren't conservative politically go, I don't think I'd be a follower of Jesus. I think it's, like a, there's like a, it's, like, it's about politics. Or, and on top of that, we lose our distinctiveness. So for those outside the church, they're like, man, I, I think they're just doing Fox News stuff. Like, it's kind of bland. It's kind of, it's like my grandpa's TV's on. He didn't turn it off. It, there's nothing distinct. Like, why, why go to a building once a week and not go to brunch? And, and why give and serve to, to do something that's synonymous with that? It's also created a scenario where those who are politically conservative can assume in those spaces that they're followers of Jesus, even though they're not really a part of a church. Uh, they aren't submitted to the scriptures. They don't live lives of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, or self-control. And they have a false assurance in their salvation. Um, I don't know if there's anything less fruit of the spirity than people storming the U.S. Capitol with John 3.16 signs. I just had Romans 13 signs. The hypocrisy would have been more palpable. By the way, it's fine if you're politically conservative. I am conservative on some stuff. But when the gospel is mixed with any other ideology, it waters down what the gospel is and what it means to believe that gospel and when that happens, the church can't speak out prophetically if it has the exact same value system as one political party. I mentioned this earlier. I want to be really clear. I'm not picking on conservatives here. The progressive church did the same thing. They just did it first. Uh, liberal mainline churches often interpret scripture in such a way that it never seems to, 
to uh, contradict progressive sensibilities. Like they have an alternate interpretation for every, any verse that would make someone in North Park offended. Anything involving sexuality or gender or objective truth or personal responsibility for sin is thrown out entirely. And again, the watching world goes, there's nothing unique here, right? Like this is the Huffington Post in Hebrew. Like this, there's, there's nothing here. Uh, a guy was talking one time about going to a, a liberal mainline church, and he said, I, I went to a church where the main point of the sermon was we need to destroy all of our nuclear weapons. I found this sermon didn't apply to me because I don't own any nuclear weapons. <laughs> like you so systematize sin that there's no individual sin anymore, even though we should take systemic sin seriously. Again, the church does stuff neither side does if it's being faithful. The watching world should go, I don't know what this is, man, but it's unique. It doesn't fit my categories. It's almost like it's from another world, which, spoiler alert, it is. It tastes different. Like they're kind of, but then they're, they're, man, I just, my categories are all jacked up. My my taxonomy is just a nightmare right now. So so salts, um, it changes uh, the taste of something. It's unique. It stands out. Um, Salt also preserves. Salt preserves. Um, I know the church is being critiqued and challenged ad nauseum these days. Like, I don't need another podcast. Now, here's what I want to say. So much of it is valid. And so much of it goes back to my point before this one, that, that the church just, op- so many churches operate like Fortune 500 companies and not like families. And you end up with these kind of nightmare situations. However, as much as we need to critique the church, which if you're a Christian means you're also critiquing yourself. If you're not, you're doing it wrong, right? Be me, like being me walking around, man, this family sucks. This family is not a good family, right? If you guys believe this family, uh, I was like, dude, we, you're in the family. You contribute to the health or, or unhealth in this thing. Uh, we need to be honest about the fact that the church has lost its distinctiveness at many times throughout history, like I mentioned above, which actually is why Jesus warns against it. I hope you see that. That doesn't disprove Jesus' teaching. Jesus warns against it because we're prone to wander as sinful people, and churches are just groups of sinful people who have been redeemed by Jesus. But we also need to acknowledge, and this is really important, okay? Church critique, great, all day. I'm down. I will have a million convos. When I go to leader conferences, I just rail on leaders, just so you guys know. When I preach to leaders, I just talk about how bad leadership's been in the church for a long time. That being said, we need to acknowledge that there has been almost no movement in regards to the world becoming a better place for humans that is not connected to the church of Jesus Christ. The church, uh, just a couple highlights, just some good highlights, right? Uh, I remember uh, in high school, um, I remember I I played football very poorly with my boy Jimmy. And uh, the the guys that had a chance to go play D1 or D2, uh, they put together highlight tapes, right? And it was like, man, these are the the plays that define them, right? Um, If you you bring this kid in to play on your squad, you can look forward to plays like this, in other words. And so the church has some highlights. It has some moments where it's preserved a, a, a godless culture. It is, it, it, the moves have been made in culture um, that are, that are all, almost always for the better. Uh, the church invented the modern education system in that it sought to educate everyone, not just the wealthy. That's a big thing. 
There's a lot of countries in the world to this day that, where the gospel has never taken root. They do not have educational systems. Um, the church invented orphanages. No small thing. And throughout the scriptures, we're encouraged to take care of the orphan. That's not a prevailing worldview where the gospel has not been. Christians invented, and this has fallen in hard times lately, um, Christians invented the scientific method that presupposes a creator who designed the world with order. Uh, Francis Bacon uh, laid the groundwork for the scientific method as we know it today. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin notes that Robert Boyle, whose name is memorialized in Boyle's Law, was another key player in the development of science. Boyle was a devout Christian, heavily invested in evangelism and Bible translation. He considered becoming a minister, but decided he could serve Jesus better as a scientist. Uh, Princeton professor and philosopher of science Hans Halverson writes, Scientists seek natural causes for natural phenomena, not divine intervention in a test tube. But this method did not arise from atheism. On the contrary, the first scientists believe our universe was designed and created by God according to a blueprint that can be discerned by rational creatures like ourselves. The church also um, invented hospitals. Like, I can go on, like, I just, I hope you see that in a society that wants to do kind of its own thing, it's humanity wants to do its own thing, that the church has called the world to take care of one another. It's easy to look at like a 50-year window of the church and go, man the church, no, man, the church has done a lot of good in the history of the world. It's done some bad stuff. We just got into that. It's lost its distinctiveness. Um, but if it's functioning rightly, it should be preserving what is good in a culture, encouraging the good, keeping, it from, keeping a culture from rotting. Um, even in s- spaces where the church lost its saltiness, none greater in America um, than the way that uh, the church was compromised to encourage slavery in some denominations and in some parts of the country. You need to know that anywhere the gospel has impacted society in a significant way, slavery is illegal today. And where the gospel has not taken root, slavery is often, it's widespread. We have more slaves than we've ever had in the history of the world. There was a huge reason why chunks of the Bibles that slaves were allowed to read were ripped out because the words of freedom were embedded in it. Abolitionists like Frederick Douglass and John Murray and William Wilberforce all believed that the gospel is what made slavery unthinkable. John Murray once made the observation that all the seeds for the abolition of slavery were sown in the pages of the New Testament. Again, every place that slavery is widespread today is a place that is considered unreached from a gospel perspective. Um, Women's rights is overwhelmingly only a reality in nations where the gospel has taken root before. Atheism does uh, does not lead someone to the assumption that women should be treated equally. Survival of the fittest doesn't equal loving and protecting women and the poor. This, by the way, this idea of salt preserving something is why I think Christian leadership in the workplace and in your job is so important. You can preserve the good and the true and the beautiful in your spheres of influence, wherever you're at. Like if I touch this, Jesus' kingdom touches it. So I'm going to do things differently if I'm your manager or if I'm your therapist, or if I'm your teacher, or if I'm your, your principal, if I'm your stay-at-home dad or stay-at-home mom, if I'm your fraternity, whatever it is, I'm going to engage this thing differently. And everyone around is going to be better because of it. We preserve the best cult- parts of culture from rotting. And the last thing salt does, it preserves, it makes things taste different, it's valuable, it also makes you thirsty. 
don't know if you guys have ever heard the phrase, like, you, you can't make a horse drink, right? Y whatever. You can. You, you give them salt. All right, you give them salt. Salt makes you thirsty. When we live salty lives, the people around us become very interested in drinking living water. This is why the New Testament, this is kind of funny because it's a salt one, but the New Testament's peppered with scriptures <laughs> about people asking. The New Testament says, hey, make every opportunity. Always have an answer when people ask about the hope that lies within you, right? You're salty. They're like, man, something's here that I don't have, and I have questions because I've observed your, your salty, you know, redemptive salty life. We're going to talk a whole lot more about being the light of the world in the next uh, two weeks. But what I want to talk about right now is, is why does it feel so hard to live out this calling? Why does it feel so hard to be salt and light in 2022 in San Diego? Uh, and I think there's a couple different reasons. One is um, kind of where we are. And I, I, we talked a lot about this last week at our Alpha Vision meeting. Um, but, but society right now can feel so uh, tricky to engage. Uh, people can jump to conclusions so quickly. They take sides so quickly. So there's this time and place we live in. So the first thing is where we are, the cultural moment we're in. Uh, we are deep in the throes of postmodernism, uh, which, which essentially says there's pretty much no objective truth or that all truth claims, um, like objective truth claims, are inherently oppressive. So postmodernism is big on what's called standpoint epistemology, which means uh, it, from my standpoint, it's true, it's true. From yours, it's yours. And so the gospel has a lot of objective truth statements about God and what the world is and how we're best to function in it. And so there's a lot of suspicion around that. Uh, the other one is, we talked about this before, uh, kind of the, the rise of the modern self, kind of Carl Truman book. We've quoted at length a few times. And the idea is this, is that the highest value in our culture is actualization and expression. So anything that pushes back on that is viewed as like awful. That's kind of like the cardinal sin of our culture right now. Uh, another one is uh, the idea, I, I call this the privatization of faith, which is what you believe is fine as long as you keep that at your house. Don't hit the streets with what you believe, Right? And so we do, we, we want to protect every class of people except for religious faith. That's increasingly what's happening um, ar around the country. It's like that's the thing that you got you to gotta tuck away. You got to keep that to yourself. Even though other truth claims we have to accept. So it's an interesting time. It's just hard to go, like, man, what's, what are you allowed to claim? What are you not allowed to claim? What are you allowed to speak into? What do you got to hold back on? And then the last one, this one's uh, probably felt shocking. This is very commonplace in the history of the church. But for us, it just feels new. And it's the idea um, that we've become the bad guys, that the church has become the, the bad guys. Um, there's, I think there's a book called Being the Bad Guy or something by this guy in Australia. It's a phenomenal book. Uh, I'm not quoting him, so I don't have it down. You're interested, but it talks about how do we survive and thrive in a context where we're not just, um, we're not just, um, like historically, Christians would intimidate people. Like there'd be this sense of like, you're more moral than me, like morally intimidated, like, well, I'm not as good as them. You know, when I get my life together, I'll come to church kind of thing. Uh, it's like a distortion of the gospel, but it's kind of like, uh, you know, you're, you're better. Da, da, da. Um, and then, you know, people start to ignore the church like, ah, uh, they're just kind of random, man. Like, who cares? Like they're 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 out of touch. Who cares? Now people are enraged by the church. Again, you believe in objective truth. You believe that there are standards for things. You believe that, that, that people are responsible for what they do, and on and on it goes. Um, and that, that's a problem in our climate. It's, it, it's opposed. Now, again, the church throughout history 
um, man, when the church first started, why martyrdom took off the way it did is, is Christians refused to claim Caesar as Christ. They had a belief that it was not kosher, and people were enraged by it. And so, I- again, the church has lived through this and flourished through this. But for us in the West, it feels like, what's going on? I thought, you know, I'm the boring guy. Why are you mad at me? And then uh, the, the last reason why I think this is so hard is just it comes down to, like, literally who we are. Our flesh, our story. Um, in light of those realities I just mentioned that are contextual, there's a lot of stuff that's, that's personal. Um, you know, issues of, of sin, issues of, uh, man, the fear of man. Man, we just want to be liked. Like, deep down, you, even the people that act, even people that are like, I don't care. Like, I don't care about what anyone thinks. Like, yes, you do. You just check, right? Like, you're, you're, the ultimate, like, drive everyone to you move is to act like you don't care what anyone thinks. Kind of socially playing, you know, hard to get. And so there's a fear of, man, all of us care what people think of us, if we're honest. Some of us are more driven by it than others. But, but man, it's a, it's a big deal. For some of us, it's just selfishness. Uh, man, I'm not going to go be salt for someone else, right? Like, I just want my life to be easy and comfortable. And so I'm not contributing to the flourishing of society or um, the glory of Jesus. Like, I'm just contributing to the glory of me. Uh, another one uh, another one would be just, uh, just doubt. Like, you're not sure where you're at spiritually. It's tough to represent Jesus if, you, if, you're, if you're struggling with who Jesus is. Uh, another one could be uh, your wounds. Again, maybe you've lived in this space of you're not valuable, you're not important. And you go, man, my contribution doesn't matter. Like, my salt doesn't work. My light doesn't work. My contribution doesn't matter much. Um, for some of us, uh, just we're distracted. Um, we're obsessed with things that don't matter. It's amazing to me how many, like, uh, again, this is a stereotype, how many men will tell me, man, I'm just not a reader. I just can't get in, you know, I can't. And they uh, will obsess. They will, I mean, they will do a research paper level, uh, research paper level, re- you know, thesis level research on fantasy football three weeks out. Or a cryptocurrency. Or whatever the flavor is. It's like, no, no, y- you're distracted. You can read what you, you know, you can give attention to something if you value it. And then last but not least, um, you just don't feel equipped. Like you're like, I'm not, I don't know how to do this. Uh, John Tyson says this. He says, you might feel like you simply haven't been trained theologically, culturally, biblically, or practically to give a winsome, incredible defense of your faith. You might feel like your time in Christian communities gets so pulled into programs, events, and obligations that we never get down to the work of pursuing lost people. Maybe nobody ever explained how to integrate your faith into your life and work in calling. Maybe you've never had a good role model or cultivated uh, your gifts in calling. So you're like, man, I just don't know what to do. Like, I want to, but, but, but I don't know what to do. Which leads to the last thing I want to talk about is, is, is what hope do we have? What hope do we have? And I have two words that have really popped for me as I've thought through this. The first one is this, is, is the word contrast. Um, salt does its best work in contrast to something else. Um, if you look at the people of God throughout Scripture, they thrive often when they do not have power, when they don't have favor with the establishment. You see this with Joseph in Egypt and Daniel and Esther in Babylon and Nehemiah with the Persians, the early church with the Roman Empire. 
and followers of Jesus today in, in places in the 1040 window in the Middle East and, and in China. Imagine if salt, I mean, can you just imagine if salt was like, it, again, I'm going to personify like literal pieces of salt right now, but, but salt comes out the salt shaker and it's a bland piece of something and he goes, man, it's bland. How are we going to be salty? If this thing's bland. It's like, yeah, bro, that's why you're here. Some of you are like, man, I want to move to a place with a bunch of salt everywhere. It's like, cool, you're not going to add any taste to anything. We have prime opportunity in this neighborhood, in this space, and in this place to represent Jesus in a beautiful way. There's contrast. And not just contrast to the bland thing around it, but contrast to the fake salts, the bad salts. The number one thing that pushes people away from the church is people who claim to be followers of Jesus who wounded them. Uh, therapists will often talk about this idea of a corrective experience where you, ex- you, were hurt by, uh, you were hurt by a person or a situation and then you kind of, uh, you kind of generalize that experience. And you go, so, so if you were hurt by a man, for example, you go, every man is dangerous. Or uh, you had a, a bad marriage, you go, man, marriage is inherently bad, whatever it is. And um, I'm oversimplifying. But uh, the idea is that t- to put you in, in, in a place where you experience a man or marriage or a woman or someone with the color red, whatever it is, um, and it's positive and it's safe and it's loving, you start to go, okay, maybe they're not all like that. We have a chance to do that as far as of Jesus, to be real salt. Does that make sense? Um, and then, so, so contrast is so important. And then the last hope we have is, is, is Christ. It's Jesus. Um, guys, you're not called to fix the world. You're not called to save the world. There is no passage of scripture that says, um, everyone will come to the Father through your name. Everyone will come to the Father through Trang. Okay? That's a recipe for burnout. One of the hardest parts right now about being alive in 2022 with a round-the-clock news cycle is that we're constantly shown what's wrong with the world. Before we can even process the brokenness and trauma of whatever is happening somewhere, we find out about another one. We can't even connect emotionally or empathize. We're on to the next one and the next one and the next one. You can start to think, I can't help anybody. There's nothing I can do. But that's not true. Jesus says, you get to be salt. You get to contribute to, to where you are. You can steward your time, your workplace, your family. You don't have to fix every workplace. Fix, let's, let's work at your workplace. You don't have to fix every church. Work with your church. You don't have to fix every family. You can work on your family. So God calls us to stewardship, and he calls us to limits. We are not going to be the, the, the people who accomplish Jesus' purposes in this world all by ourselves. He accomplishes those, and he gives us a small part in that. Does that make sense? Our job is to be faithful with, with the peace he gave us, the, the sphere he gave us. I'm reading a tremendous book right now. Um, it's, it's a book on limits. Um, it's called You're Only Human by Kelly Kapik, and he, um, he's a uh, professor at Covenant Seminary, and, and he says this. He says, ever since the fall... When Satan first rolled up, uh, his first thing he, he tells Adam and Eve is he says, God doesn't want you to be God, essentially. Like you have limits and boundaries and finiteness 
and God's holding out on you because he is all, he is none of those things. He's infinite. He's all these things. And he said, so often in, in modern culture, we beat ourselves up for not being infinite. Like we all are like, I should be doing more. I should be doing more. I should be a better parent. I should be better at work. I should make more money. I should invest better. I should give more. I should help with this justice issue. And what about this justice issue? And what about this justice issue? And I should be on social media less, but I should be advocating on social media more. I need to get my fashion sense. Like my, I got, I got to dress better. But man, I gotta, I, I gotta think about the injustice tied to fast fashion. And and I, and I got, and, and we can go on and on and on and on of all the stuff we should be. And God goes, you can't be everything. If you're everything, you're nothing. I'm infinite. You're finite. And so Kelly Capic, he says what we do is um, we, we train kids from high school on to get up at 7 a.m. and to work till about 1030. And it, right, they kill themselves right, if they want to go to college. Blah, 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 and, and then that's their day. Go have a little bit of food and get back to work. And then we, get, we live life that way forever where we're constantly behind or need to achieve or need to be more than we are to prove that we're something. And he says oftentimes we almost act like that's sin that we're finite. Like you only have so much time. You only have certain skills. You only have the education you have. And what if we took the word only out and just said you have this and you have this and you have this. And again, when God created us with limits, he said it is good. And Kelly Capic says, he says, we, we, we almost go like something's wrong with me that I'm not more. And he said, actually, we need to confess that we want to be more all the time. That's the heart of the fall, and it's the heart of what's burning all of us out. And so as we talk about mission, I'm not trying to put 19 more things on your plate. I want to be really clear about that. Because we talk about renewals. We talk about making the world. But I'm saying you have, most of you got, everyone here has a vocation. There's a thing you do each day, paid or unpaid. You have a vocation. Would you be salt and light where you already are? Would you remember you get to do that? Does that make sense? Jesus will accomplish his big picture restoration if we're faithful with our little parts he is faithful to bring it about as we approach this idea of salt and light i think we might be coming at it from a couple different angles a couple different positions um and and, and i just want to run through these and with your eyes closed i want you to consider where you might be because uh, spoiler alert all of these need jesus just in different ways the first one is the selfish this is the person who is, just doesn't care about their contribution at all. If you're honest, you kinda, your world's gotten really small. Maybe it's always been small. And you kind of keep contributing to yourself. Your kingdom, your glory, your joy, your peace. Not the joy and peace of others, not, not the glory of Jesus. That you haven't even considered bringing salt and light to your workplace. Or to your family. That's the selfish. The next is the shattered. The shattered. This is, uh, this is the burned out person. The person who thinks their contribution is bigger than it really is. Maybe you've got a little bit of a Messiah complex. You can't say no. Every need is, is a responsibility. And you're killing yourself. And you keep thinking, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. Please hear Jesus when he says he wants to give you rest for your soul, friend. 
Your job's to be salts, not to be a savior. You can only you can only salt salt the piece of meat you're on. You, you can't be more places than once. You're not omnipresent. Jesus is. Would you hear Jesus calling you to himself and then calling you to just be present in the spaces you're in? To be fully present instead of shattered and scattered. The next is the scared. So whereas the selfish, you know, just thinks, I, I don't really care about contributing or the shattered thinks my contribution's bigger than it really is. The scared goes, this contribution will cost me and I'm terrified. If I come out as a follower of Jesus, if I'm honest about my faith, if I, you know, people will scoff at me or laugh at me or stereotype me or label me. And I just can't bear that. What will people think? And if that's you, I would just pray, would you, I just want to pray the approval and delight of Jesus over you. That at the end of the day, the king of the universe adores you, and that's all that really matters. You don't need to fear man. You don't need to be aware constantly of what people think. You can be aware of what he thinks and live from that, which will free you to love people instead of use them for acceptance or promotion or help, whatever it is. So there's the selfish, the shattered, the scared. And the last person I want to speak to is, is the small. And I'll put small in air quotes. The small, and this is the person who thinks my contribution doesn't matter. Again, maybe it's that, those voices you heard early in life that told you you'd never amount to anything. Or, um, or maybe you're just, you just have a huge gift of mercy or empathy and all of the constant news feeds of what's broken. You go, I can't really impact a thing. I'm one small piece of salt in a big old freshwater lake. Friend, would you hear Jesus again say to you, no, you matter. You've got a part of the lake. Make that thing salty. Jesus, I thank you that you call us out of selfishness and self-absorption. I thank you that you, you remind all of us, none of us are small in the kingdom. I love what Campbell shared earlier about the widow with the, with the, with the, with the, the, two, the two coins. I think it's actually one coin that's worth almost nothing but meant the world to you. But there are no small people in the kingdom. We're all made in, in the image of Jesus, created for good works. I thank you that you call us to a life of rest. Not a life that, that doesn't work, but a life that doesn't work to prove ourselves. A life that doesn't work to, to save the world, but a, a life we work hard from, from rest. We work hard knowing who we are and who we aren't. What's at stake and what isn't. I thank you for all of that, Jesus. I thank you that you died that you died for our selfishness, that you died to set us free from a small life, that you died to give us rest for our soul. And you died to, to, to draw us to yourself. And so as we take communion, Lord, would you remind us that you're with us, 
regardless of where we're coming from, you have what we need. And we need it, but we have confidence that we have it. If we don't have confidence, would you give us the humility to admit that? To reach out, to admit we, we don't really know what it means to follow you. We don't know what it means to, to receive your forgiveness, to receive your salvation, to receive your invitation. Jesus, thank you for living for us. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for rising for us. Thank you that you will one day restore all things. And I got to pray throughout this series, you would show us what are, how you want us to engage these things. It's not going to be the same for all of us. We're going to come at work. We're going to come at justice. We're going to come at evangelism. We're going to come at all these different areas differently. But would you show us what's ours? Would you empower us to own it? faithfully would you make us a people who lived cross-shaped lives where we sacrifice for the benefit of others because you sacrifice for us first and it's in your name we pray amen